Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 74, recorded on June 28th, 2019. And uh, this is the uh, Total Geek Out show where we just take a look at the news of the week in the photography industry and find some interesting stories to talk about. Uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and with me is always a guest host. And this week, it's a new voice on the podcast. He's somebody that I've, his voice is ringing in my head well before we've ever shared any words together. Um, he's been, uh, where have I? seen this guy the nab show uh, as a live anchor some training videos from canon uh, of course he is a co-host on the picturing success podcast uh, with rick salmon and so many other places um this uh, this guy if you don't know who i'm talking about already is larry becker larry thank you so much for being on today Don, it's a pleasure. And by the way, thank you for being on our podcast. I had a lot of fun listening to you and Rick doing your interview. And um, it, it hasn't actually, as of today, hasn't aired yet, but it will very, very soon. And um, I got to tell you, I am a fan of your work. I I was blown away by, and I, I know, you know, you're not supposed to start the show like this, but I, I was blown away by the uh, the macro of the ant and the globes of water on the blade of grass. I saw that long before I even knew you shot the image. Just a, a an incredible image. So huge fan. Thank you. And uh, you know, ants are not uh, not cooperative actors. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of shots. Uh, there's there's a lot of chaotic elements involved in that. And and I've been doing water droplet refraction photography for years. Um, but you kind of get bored with the same. Okay, put a blade of uh, grass in the frame and put water droplets on it and. I can set that shot up in about five minutes and there's nothing terribly interesting about it once you've done it once. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can always switch that up. In fact, just recently, yesterday, I shot an image uh, with a curled uh, a grapevine tendril and I put a, a green weevil, a tiny little beetle-like insect uh, on that uh, uh, little spirally thing with water droplets all over it. And the funny thing about it was I expected to you know, have everything lined up perfectly and maybe he'll do this one striking pose for a brief instant of time and I'll take the photograph and I'll be happy with it. The weevil climbs to the top of this little uh, spirally thing and sits there and he's not even moving. I'm thinking, well, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. I mean, he's like in the perfect pose. He was drinking one of the water droplets. Oh, very cool. So it gave me enough time to actually switch the camera into uh, uh, Panasonic has their high resolution modes. So instead of shooting uh, a 47 megapixel image on the S1R, I switched over and shot a 187 megapixel image and was able to focus stack five different frames. Uh, it takes a couple of seconds in between shots when it's rendering all of that data. So the the guy just, uh, the little weevil just sat there perfectly. The only difference is the drop that he was drinking got noticeably smaller from one shot to the next. And I needed to manually correct sure. for that. Um, but I put the, uh, uh, the icing on the cake where uh, using a small hypodermic needle, I placed another droplet on the weevil's head just because I yeah. could, because he was sitting still. So yeah, you know, when we talk about those kinds of image making things, it's always uh, an adventure. You don't know what you're going to create. And then in the moment, you get new ideas all the time. So my question is, did you use a macro rail or was that handheld? How'd you do it? So in that case, I had it on a rail. Uh, I own a uh, Cognosys stack shot. And so uh, it's a fancy automated rail where I can, uh, uh, I've got a little remote port and I can manually just move it forward and backward or I Very can program cool. it uh, to, uh, to be at specific steps. For this one, because I wasn't sure uh, how long it would take the camera to properly reset itself after every shot, uh, I was just manually moving it. 
Sure. And, uh, and five shots tended, uh, it worked just fine. I got more than enough information there. Um, but it's just kind of all the tools of the trade, right? You know, and as yeah. technology continues to push forward, we as photographers uh, should embrace I don't want to say that the latest and greatest tech makes you a better photographer. That's a bit of a misnomer. And I know we all have gear acquisition syndrome to some degree. Um, but when you have new technology and you find novel ways to use it, that high resolution mode came in pretty handy. Yeah, there's no question that that you can do an awful lot with some of these new tools. And the the things that we're able to do today compared to when I learned photography, which was a lot of years ago. Um, and I learned when I was shooting film and not using autofocus. And, uh, and that's also a reason that I ended up getting away from photography for several years, quite a few years. I was a design major, actually a, a communications major, and I focused a lot on design. Uh, photography was part of my college era, and um, I did some things in the darkroom. Uh, and you know, processed my own images, but that didn't stick with me. And back then there was so much into each of the areas of design and image capture and retouching and things like that, that you picked one or the other. And I picked layout and design and um, also writing for marketing pieces at the time. But I, I didn't stick with, although I had a passing knowledge of the photography stuff, I didn't stick with it. And then with digital photography and the evolution of technology just generally, we're all able to deep dive so much more now than you used to be able to do. It used to be you'd pick a career. And now yeah. you, can, <laughs> you can have deep career knowledge in a lot of different areas all at once. I'm watching my son do it, and it's fascinating to uh, to see all the tools that are out there plus all of the training information and as a photographer today i think you have to wear far more hats than you ever would have in the past i mean um as a photographer you are not guaranteed to be but pretty likely to be an entrepreneur to be a small yeah. business owner yourself and not necessarily be a full-time staff at another organization. So you have to uh, wear the small business hat, which includes, you know, marketing and uh, and managing of, uh, of finances and accounting and constant communication with clients and everything else. In addition to all the photographic skills that you'd need, um, it's now even video. Like I do a lot of video work for specific clients and for documentary films. And so I guess you could call yourself a uh, multimediographer more than just a photographer these days. And I know, Larry, you do a lot of work in the in the video space. Yeah. Um, and that's only getting bigger and better and more bold uh, in terms of the demand from the industry, especially in a lot of the niches uh, that I tend to play in. Uh, and so I'll get calls out of the blue. I, I wrapped up some work this past winter on a public broadcaster out of Norway because they needed close-up work of snowflakes and freezing soap bubbles in video. Uh, so you never know, you know, who's going to give you a call and you have to just say, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. <laughs> and then go off and figure out exactly how you're going to accomplish what you just promised. Oh, no question. We've been doing that for a lot of years as entrepreneurs. When, uh, when I used to build websites for a living in the early days of commercial websites, um, there's no question that that's how you answer the question. <laughs> you just yeah, say, exactly. yep, I can do that. And then how the heck am I going to do this? 
True. Well, and that kind of that kind of lends into uh, our our top story for uh, for the week um, because Canon has been teasing uh, some uh, sensors for quite some time. We've heard uh, rumors and then some soft announcements before about a 120 megapixel uh, high resolution sensor that uh, we always had the suspicions that Canon was not going to uh, bake into its own products, but rather sell uh, to other customers that might have had a specific need for it. They've also um, uh, put an updated, incredibly uh, high sensitivity sensor out there on the market as well. So these two uh, are now official. And uh, I found it from canonrumors.com, but it links to the canon-moss-sensors.com, not a, uh, a friendly URL. But from there, you'll find uh, all of the, the wares that Canon is offering as a sensor designer for anybody that is wanting to put these things together. And we have more details on these things uh, than we've ever had before. I want to talk uh, probably more prominently on the 120 megapixel sensor because um, there's a lot of juicy information here. And it's not something, again, that us as photographers are going to be interacting with. Uh, more than likely, this is going to have, if you uh, if you take a look, and I know you've made some notes here, so I want to get your opinions in a second, Larry. Um, but the kinds of uses that they deliver for this, they state scientific research, reconnaissance, intelligent traffic systems, large area surveillance. Um, that all makes a lot of sense for this particular type of product. But the technology will probably distill down into something that we can utilize as end consumers in terms of the uh, um, the technology know-how that goes into this will have a ripple effect through the industry. So uh, what are your initial thoughts on this first foray into, uh, into sensors uh, for other manufacturers? I think it's a great idea. I mean, Canon has a, a tremendous reputation for their sensor quality, their sensor design, and their ability to uh, provide nuance capabilities with respect to the you know the sensors that they do create. The thing that struck me when I was reading the article is this is a little peek at Canon presenting this sensor technology as being available to others to be able to incorporate it into their processes. But you got to believe behind the scenes, there's even more we don't know about that Canon has developed. Maybe it's already there. Maybe it's already in production. Maybe something like this sensor has already been in the hands of um, high-level government uh, secret agencies. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, uh, by any stretch, but I mean, that's the way that a lot of this technology works is a lot of it gets into the hands of NASA and the federal government, and they're using the technology before it trickles out to the rest of us. So I, I'm thinking that while this sounds like a, an incredible announcement, there's probably even more out there. And then the reason to announce it is twofold. Canon, sure, they're putting it out there to the scientific community and saying, this might be usable by you. Uh, let's talk and feel free to reach out to us. But at the same time, they're also exciting nerds that are really into cameras like me. And now <laughs> I'm looking at this going, oh, this is so cool because it's a preview of what's coming in the next year or three, potentially to consumer available products. Yeah. And you look at the, the pixel size on this is 2.2 microns, which is very, very small to cram that number of pixels into a sensor that is uh, an APS-H size, which was an interesting design decision. 
And I think, like you mentioned, uh, government contracts and things like that, they might have very specific uh, requirements in terms of how fast something like this can shoot. Sure. Um, and I think the reason why, and I'm just uh, assuming here that Canon had rolled out the, um, the APS-H sensors in the 1D series camera bodies to begin with, is they, they needed a professional size of sensor but they also needed a ridiculously fast rate of fire. Yes. And so they had to make the compromise where you had to make the sensor a little bit smaller so that it would afford the faster readouts that in that current generation of product simply was not possible at a full frame sensor size. And so uh, that, I believe, is the reason why we're looking at a 9.4 frames per second rate here, which isn't quite up to video terms. But if you had a, uh, a camera like this with a massive surrounding subsystem, because that's a ton of data that you're processing, that uh, in like a, uh, a presidential inauguration or a State of the Union address and you want to do facial recognition on a massive scale for people in the audience and see if there's anybody on a potential watch list. Yeah, for a government purpose, there's a ton of reasons why you would want that. What really struck me as interesting uh, is that they've got three versions of this. And it's not uncommon for uh, custom sensors to have a color and a black and white version. Right. And we've got both of those. But they have an RGB and near-infrared version of the sensor, which I don't think I've ever seen anybody do uh, before. And as a photographer that has played with infrared photography, and I quite enjoy that, the way they've done this is really captivating for me. And uh, I don't know how such raw files would be processed, but what they've done is uh, if you're familiar with a standard a Bayer pattern color filter array, you have red, green, and blue photosites on the sensor. And uh, it's important that I, I make the distinction. These are photosites. They're not pixels. They contain one color information, not all three, like a pixel right. would. So you have an array that is uh, green, blue, green, blue, green, blue, and then red, green, red, green, red, green, et cetera. Uh, so in an array of four pixels, you have one red, one blue, and two green. Well, they've replaced one of those green pixels with a near-infrared pixel. So you still have all the RGB information, but now you have a near-infrared image that is also part of that same file captured uh, at exactly the same time, which uh, and they've given some uh, documentation on their website why this might be particularly useful. You can see things in infrared that would otherwise be invisible in regular light. Um, who knows how this might be useful in certain use cases? But if you've got a use for it for scientific purposes or, or even for surveillance to identify things that would be otherwise invisible, that information is being captured as well. But here's where things get interesting for me. Um, I was thinking, OK. Uh, the way a regular sensor is designed, it either has two or three pieces of glass in front of the actual sensor itself. I took apart a Nikon D4 sensor that was sent to me. It was a, a broken, uh, broken one. So I had the joy of taking it apart without the need of putting it back together again. And um, there was three pieces of glass, one that was uh, fused to the sensor itself, more of a protective thing. But in front of that, there was one that cut off infrared light and one that cut off sure. ultraviolet light. So, uh, that means the, the CMOS sensor itself is inherently sensitive to, uh, to both of those. And so if you want to narrow it down to just human vision, you block it all the way off. But you would have to remove the near-infrared cutoff filter from all of the pixels so that you would have to potentially uh, allow a little bit of uh, infrared light to leak into the color image. You know, that's a great point. I, I really appreciate this insight, and I hadn't thought about it that way. 
Yeah. And uh, if, if you if you have to do that, you would also either potentially degrade the image quality or you're using micro lenses on the sensor that have some sort of blocking ability only on the uh, the photo sites that are visible light and, and have a different uh, uh, type of technology for those that are near infrared or you've re-engineered the, um, the color filter itself to be better blocking at the near infrared. So there's some magic that Canon is doing behind the scenes um, that probably wasn't possible in, in a previous generation of product. Now, I know Canon in the past has also made um, uh, astrophotography uh, modified uh, sensors where it has um, a, uh, a modified uh, low pass filter that lets the hydrogen alpha band, which is in the really deep reds, is normally just cut off uh, to then be allowed to, to come through to the sensor and can be recorded uh, into the image. So who knows what we might see in a consumer facing product they might make as they've made those niche products with the 20D and the 60D, I believe, uh, yeah. a version for infrared enthusiasts that lets you do everything all at once and have some really fun creative opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be imagined. Well, and you know, they're also going to provide the software that'll support this. And so this is not going to be for the mainstream consumer. I would think that even if their camera raw information um, makes it completely in its entirety to the people at Adobe, you're still not going to be processing these images more than likely uh, with Photoshop or Lightroom just because of the enhanced capabilities. They've done that before where their software has greater ability to define details and um, provide different focus information, alternate focus information. The dual pixel raw files and, and that sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. Right? And you just can't do that um, with any tool besides the Canon tools. So already the audience is very, very small. But in that specialized audience, um, there are uh, just a tiny handful of us consumers that care about that stuff. It's primarily going to be uh, science and um, a potentially government. Yeah, uh, it would be interesting to see if you could uh, you know, get somebody like Phil Harvey, who makes the excellent um, EXIF tool software, and he loves to dive into all of these raw files and pull out all sorts of, uh, you know, interesting secrets and hidden information and things like that. Um, it would be interesting if uh, if you could write a script that would pull out the near infrared image from the color information. Um, anybody that knows their way around a raw file and, and programming would probably be able to separate those two. Uh, and then you could process them in a more traditional manner. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. But another interesting point here, too, is on uh, quantum efficiency. It's not a term that we usually get to see, uh, but I... Uh, I basically, I, I filled out, the, there's a little form on the website for product downloads and you have to ask who you are and what you want it for. And I just said, hey, we're going to be talking about this on Photo Geek Weekly. So I want the PDF of all the details. And you can tell that this is designed for people that are going to manufacture it into another product. I've got sure. a complete pin out. Uh, there's 188 pins on this thing, each of them dealing with tons of different uh, stuff. If you were to build a circuit that holds one of these sensors, et cetera. But it did have information on quantum efficiency, which is effectively... Um, the percentage of photons that get accurately uh, represented as electrons by the sensor, uh, and the higher that number, the uh, the more light is effectively collected, right? So uh, in this case, uh, it's it's interesting. The um, quantum efficiency of the uh, of the regular color sensor uh, for the green uh, uh, photosites is forty one percent. 
But for that same wavelength, it's 51% on the monochrome sensor. So for different use cases, you might want to have a more sensitive uh, product. And so Canon also has a, uh, a new incredibly high sensitivity sensor. And that is their, I mean, these, these model numbers roll right off the tongue. Um, it is, geez, what is it here? The uh, 35mm FHDXSCA. Uh, uh, their marketing team, I think, needs to jump in here. And come up with something a little bit snazzier, uh, but it has much much bigger pixels uh, versus the uh, the previous sensor we were just talking about. Uh, previously, it was two point two microns. Now we're up to nineteen microns. They're massive, uh, uh, massive uh, receptors here for light, uh-huh. and at ninety eight frames per second. Now, Larry, I know you do a lot of work in the video space, um, and I've had to do some. Uh, sort of limit pushing stuff in some of the projects that I've worked on more on uh, resolving on an extremely small scale rather than an incredibly low light. But you watch some of those beautifully done nature documentaries from National Geographic sure. Discovery, and they have images taken in seemingly complete darkness under starlight of animals. Uh, and this would be you know, a potential target for that sort of thing, right? Oh, there's no question that it could be used all kinds of different ways. And I think, um, I think the fun thing is to think about the creative and step back, step away a little bit from government surveillance. I mean, those obvious uses uh, or private security. Yeah, of course. But I can't wait to find out what the creative minds are going to do when they have access to these kinds of image capture devices where they're describing that you can actually capture a very good quality image in circumstances where the human eye can't even tell what's going on. Like uh, the, the interactions of a, uh, of a bat colony at night uh, under just moonlight or something like that, right? Where you might need to have a fast rate of fire in very, very low light in order to capture something that uh, would tell a narrative that would be impossible to tell otherwise. I think right? that, yeah, I think that the, uh, the fun part is going to be the discovery. Where can yeah. we use this? How can we use it? I, I can't believe that, uh, you know, th- there are going to be discoveries that happen as a result of these technologies being put in place. Right. And it was interesting, too. Uh, and I, I'm not sure why, but it might go to speak whoever originally commissioned Canon to produce this sensor. Um, they call it a full frame sensor. We know full frame to be 36 millimeters by 24 millimeters. Mm-hmm. This sensor is 41.04 millimeters by 24.32 millimeters, very unusual specifications. So it would create an image um, that uh, would have uh, serious vignettes. You would see the image circle uh, if you were to apply this with a lens designed for a full frame camera. Mm -hmm. So its original purpose is something uh, different uh, and they might have used a different lens format or something else in order to make this work. So um, regardless of the technical specifications, when this gets uh, baked into a high resolution or um, a high sensitivity product, and Canon did make uh, one of their own cameras that had their previous generation of incredibly high sensitivity um, into this weird little boxy kind of camera uh, that had an exorbitant price tag. But I'm sure for the right audience, you'd be able to push some pretty fun creative limits there. All right. Um, I think we've talked this story to death and it was uh, it was a fun discussion, though, uh, just to, to, to kind of cover all the bases. Uh, I don't think any podcast is really talking about this stuff. So you come here for this, folks. Um, but something that might be a little bit more commonplace is our next story. And I got a, a bone to pick with with this as well uh, for my own personal reasons. But 
Um, this reported by DP Review. I've seen it elsewhere too, but uh, 500px, uh, the photo sharing website, uh, tells photo artist it once praised that his work is no longer welcome on the platform. So uh, if you're not familiar with 500px, originally started as a Canadian company just outside of Toronto, Ontario, uh, now is wholly owned by Visual China Group, uh, who is a uh, prominent stakeholder in the company for a long time before they bought out everything. And uh, I haven't really enjoyed a lot of the stuff that's been happening in that transition. Um, in fact, recently, one of my images was, uh, uh, it was just a, the photo of, uh, of my book cover, my upcoming uh, book. Uh, it's currently on Kickstarter, if uh, people haven't checked that out yet. And I just posted the, uh, the cover uh, as, a think, hey guys, you know, check what I'm up to. And, and they, they didn't warn me. They just completely banned my account without any notice uh-huh. or anything. And uh, I complained and they reinstated the account after they removed that particular photograph. And I posted one more image to the service, basically stating that uh, I'm not coming back. Um, you know, find me elsewhere on social media, but uh, I am done with you guys because I posted that same photo on Flickr, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else. And it was perfectly fine. But they have some seemingly draconian rules that they are putting in place. Uh, Larry, what are your thoughts? Wow. Uh, yeah, there are so many of these kinds of things happening, uh, in, in photography and with respect to, um, just about anything, there are the police of the company making in many cases, apparently arbitrary decisions based on what seem to be community guidelines. And what was fun for me with this article is to read the feedback because it's on both sides. It's on both sides. And so people are outraged on both sides. Um, and what you, what you end up with is when there is a private company and they have rules, they can make whatever rules they want as long as those rules are consistent with not violating somebody's rights with respect to breaking the law. Right. It's not a free speech platform, right? If somebody writes a comment on a post that I make on Facebook, for example, I can delete their comment. There's nothing they can do about it. It's not a uh, a public venue. It's yes, it might be a publicly traded company in some cases, but free speech laws as they would, uh, you know, apply to somebody uh, speaking their voice on a street corner or in a protest or uh, in other uh, forms of media, it, it doesn't necessarily apply to the same degree. Right. The thing that that frustrates me more than anything is when a company has apparently a set of rules, they make a decision based on apparently on their set of rules and they blacklist somebody, close down their account, stop a post from existing and what have you because they misunderstood. That's where the frustration comes in, because if somebody is uh, taken from a platform because of the rules of that platform, that's really kind of up to the platform. But if yeah. somebody somebody has some posted rules and they don't say, you know, pictures of frogs are against the rules here and they and and you post a picture of a frog, okay, it's going to go away. But you post a picture of a dog and they say, yeah, it's a still uh, sounds the same. It's a synonym or a homonym. It sounds, it rhymes. It sounds close enough. We're going to get rid of it uh, just because. It, then when they're kind of adjusting their own rules 
to make something so that they can prohibit it or ban it. That's where the frustration comes in. Additionally, when they reach out to remove something without contacting the author, um, there are videos that I've done that get pulled from YouTube because of music licensing. I've got the license to the music. And so then right. you have and to, it's an automated system where whoever yep. uh, owns the music uh, will go and scour uh, YouTube and YouTube has uh, utilities for um, the larger record labels and, and even individuals to uh, identify where their uh, their sounds are being used and flag them uh, if they're being misused. But a lot of these same companies will license that music legitimately. Sure. But it still gets automatically flagged. Yep. And I, I've had some of that happen myself. Uh, I even had an, um, an image. It was a stereoscopic 3D photograph of a jumping spider in a flower. Uh, and it was really cool. And I woke up the next morning and it was gone. It just vanished. The only recollection of it any uh, ever existing uh, was I had shared it on my professional uh, page, but I also shared that post on my personal account. And there was just a little notice saying that uh, uh, this content is not available. And if I click further, it said that it violated the Facebook community guidelines, which are designed to prevent people from posting uh, things that violate rights, hate speech, sure. uh, you know, uh, uh, pornographic content right. or, you know, uh, criminal content or anything like that. Um, but if somebody decides to report an image because they don't like it and it goes through some automated algorithm in the Facebook deep learning engine that says, yeah, we're going to take a look at this and then automatically flag it. There was no appeals process. I mean, I sent an email to appeals at facebook.com uh, because that's the only thing you can do. There's no button that says, can you undo this? Because they didn't even let me know it was gone. Exactly. It just vanished. And then mysteriously, a few hours after I complained and made a fuss, it showed up again. So uh, y y you never know what's going to happen with these platforms. But 500px praised this artist previously. Yes. And now, um, because of new management, let's say, I mean, or a different direction, they want to make it solely about photography. And I mean, I get that you want to uh, preserve realism uh, in imagery, but these composites are purely art. I mean, nobody is second guessing these as a real sure, scene. Sure, no question. Uh, and, and so there's, there's no um, uh, confusion in that uncanny valley of, well, this looks like it could be real, but I'm not sure about it. And the problem is, if they're trying to stop the images in that sort of uncanny valley area of it's almost real, it looks kind of real, but I'm not quite sure something is a little bit off, these images are not that. And that type of image that I just described would be impossible uh, with current software and technology to detect, right? So I think they might be barking up the wrong tree here, um, just from my own personal opinion. And as you said, I'm looking at this article right now. It's got over 300 comments on a DP review article. You usually don't get that kind of interaction unless it's a camera exactly. reviewer announcement. Uh, yeah. So to have people so vocal on either sides of this really speaks to the ability to have our own choice in things. Um, and, uh, I wish that a platform that embraces artists, uh, not just photographers. I mean, I've seen some great, uh, oil paintings and, uh, heavily processed photos that become art of a different kind, um, sure. shared on, uh, you know, platforms like Flickr. And I embrace that and they have their own little communities there for that kind of content. And if 500px wants to be just for the cut and dry quote unquote photography, uh, then that's probably not a platform that's going to be as interesting to me anymore. 
Well, I think they also need to come out with a public statement because obviously this is public, it's news, it's being written about and commented on. So they need to have a statement, a position statement. And if they've changed who they are, how they're judging work, what the limits are, they need to define that too. Because one of the challenges is um, we go back to an argument that you hear quite a bit. I want to get it right in camera. I don't want to do any any of that stuff in Photoshop. But Ansel Adams did retouching and had retouching done on his images like you wouldn't believe. If you were to take one of uh, Ansel Adams' uh, original negatives and just do a contact print of it, it is a flat, boring, everybody would just pass that by as mundane, right? Right. So, you know, it's funny, too, because the camera sees the world differently than we see things with our own eyes. You know, human vision will only see one thing in an instant. We might see 100 things in a minute or more, but we only see one thing in an instant where the camera sees everything instantaneously. And so if we try to remember a scene that we see with our own eyes after the fact, we only remember what we looked at and we fill in the blanks. So what we see with our eyes is inherently different than what a camera sees. And our memory is still different five minutes, five hours, five years after that event than what the camera sees and what we see with our own eyes. Reality is inherently subjective. And so if you try to put a pin and say reality has to be what the camera sees, well, that's completely missing the point of our own human reality as well. And so, you know, you, you can't argue that uh, that it is truthful because truth is relative in a sense. No question. This brings to mind a a discussion that I heard Scott Kelby having about a wedding. When he shot a wedding, he took all these great pictures of the bride, obviously, and he was he was retouching the images. He was culling the shoot, and he noticed a scar on the bride's right shoulder. She had a bare shoulder uh, because of the way the wedding dress was cut. He had not seen. He he'd been with the bride and groom. All day long shooting the wedding and he had never seen it until he's reviewing the images looking at them in lightroom and he said that's amazing so he got rid of the scar then he showed it to a couple of other people who had been at the wedding and he said did you know that the bride had a scar on her her shoulder and they said a what a no i never saw that so all the people there didn't see that they saw different aspects of the event but they never saw the scar on her shoulder. And so him taking it away is really a couple of different things, but as much as anything, it is the human interpretation of the camera's capture. Yeah. And I think that as photographers, that's our job, right? I mean, we have to come in at some point in that process. Otherwise, we're just camera technicians, right? We're uh, you know, crime scene photographers or insurance photographers, uh, you know, where nothing can be altered or modified in any way. Even a photojournalist can tell a story. Right. So uh, we have to kind of ride that line and say, OK, well, uh, in that particular instance that you just described with uh, Scott Kelby, I might have asked the bride because maybe she's proud of it. Maybe it has sure. some uh, uh, meaningful memory and she wore a dress specifically because that scar would then be visible. Um, and if you remove it, well, then you might be removing part of her character. Right. If it's a pimple or a temporary blemish, that's an entirely different thing. And yep. I'm sure nobody would notice if, uh, you know, that the bride had a zit on her back or sure. something, you know. Uh, and yeah, of course, you know, uh, remove that as well. But uh, it's all about creative intent, I think. And 
you know, how about uh, composites? You know, when I'm doing a lot of my macro photography, I'm doing focus stacking. I'm combining multiple images at different focus points. So if I were to be photographing a snowflake and combining on average about 40 separate images to get one that was completely sharp from tip to tip, um, that's photo manipulation right there. I'm trying to of course. Uh, get closer to reality with that manipulation, however. So what is the intent? And uh, if they don't spell out exactly what their rules are in every potential fringe case like that, then uh, arbitrarily saying yes or no to the kind of content will just enrage the audience of the platform. Well, and I think you've also come up with another solution at the very beginning of this discussion when you said, I elected to not do business on that platform anymore because of the, you know, the arbitrary way they removed my image. Uh, that is what is incumbent on us. It's important for us to look at topics like this, look at circumstances like this. Be outraged if you want to be outraged. Leave the platform if you want to leave the platform and let the platform suffer or define itself and yield the results that they've asked for. And so um, as we appreciate the art, as we redefine what it is that is a composite, uh, That sorry for the American pronunciation, um, but regardless, whatever we define as that's pushing it past photographic interpretation and manipulate becoming manipulation and art. Okay, to what end? Yeah. So, so we need to we need to keep in mind what the goal is, and then one of the other topics that that comes up in this same circumstance would be news. You know, I don't mind uh, composite images that tell the truth, but a composite image that is taken over a period of time showing multiple people in a scene that weren't actually in the scene just to create a poignant news story, then I have a problem with that. Well, and, and so long as that kind of uh, image manipulation is, uh, is identified and, uh, you know, called out immediately, you know, for like maybe they're trying to make a, a, a point of superimposing two people together that were never in the same room together sure. um, because the story is about some communication that they may have had. Uh, well, sure. I mean, if you want to have a visual representation of that, but I clearly identify that as not being a, uh, a true to life image. And, and I'm fine with that. The problem is when even the slightest manipulations in terms of photojournalism go by without being noticed, then we have an issue. But um, that that we could have a whole podcast on just that discussion alone. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to the next story because I still got two more stories to go here. Yeah, and I don't want to run down the clock uh, uh, too much here on uh, the 500px. But if you are a user of the service, uh, just consider everything that's going on, whether or not you should continue to use it. You know, I, I didn't delete the account because I heard that some people deleting their accounts and still getting notifications of comments on photographs that apparently shouldn't be online anymore, uh, or deleted accounts where there was um, a password security issue, there was a security breach in the service, and everybody that had deleted accounts got notifications. Well, they shouldn't get notifications if they don't have an account there anymore. So I just left it where it is uh, statically, and we'll carry that forward. Okay, so the next story. Hasselblad uh, updates the C, uh, CFV digital back for the V system film cameras and produces a tiny, in medium format terms, uh, a tiny uh, 907X body. So Hasselblad, um, you know, 
the brand's been around for a long time. They, uh, they've kind of switched hands in terms of who owns them uh, a number of times as well. But they're still producing fairly high quality medium format cameras. Um, and when they came out with the X uh, system, uh, the, uh, the X1D, they, uh, they stopped producing the CFV50C back as an independent product, probably because there was constraints on the manufacturing pipeline. Um, but now it's back. So they, the version two of this digital back adds a few new features, uh, including a touchscreen. And uh, they don't really state if it's exactly the same sensor inside. It might be, it might not. Um, but it's an updated design. Uh, if anybody is using the Hasselblad um, uh, system. And th the funny thing about this, uh, Larry, is you know I've always enjoyed the physical heft of medium format cameras i mean i shot with the canon mm -hmm. 1d and 1dx uh, uh uh and the mark ii for that for years and having a big camera in your hands just feels really solid um it's not for sure. every purpose mind you i wouldn't be traveling with a camera like that i did and i regret it um but <laughs> when you see this absolutely tiny uh body that they've uh that they've attached this uh this back to it's kind of comical how small it is. What are your thoughts on the medium format space in general and these announcements from Hasselblad? Well, I actually, I'm kind of intrigued and I like not only that it has a touchscreen, but it's a tilting touchscreen. Yeah. So you get the, uh, the traditional top down view as you're shooting. Um, I think it's an appropriate step in the right direction. One of the things that I didn't do is I've got a buddy who is a uh, shooter for them. And uh, I didn't have a chance to reach out to him, but I, I'm looking forward to that conversation to get a little bit of behind the scenes on the thought process. You know, that's that's one of the things that I occasionally got to do as a uh, camera reviewer. I was a, a DSLR camera reviewer for a number of years for uh, B&H in New York. And in that role, then I would sometimes receive cameras before the public did. And in some cases, I'd receive a camera and I'd go, what is the manufacturer thinking? Well, for me, I could call up a buddy of mine who worked at, at Canon in one of the technical departments and go, what is the purpose of this camera? I just don't even get it. And then he would say, okay, well, they wanted to deliver th this feature set at this price point. And when they did that, that means we're going to sell 10,000 units to big box stores versus this unit or this unit. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, it doesn't make sense to us as the consumer. It doesn't make sense to us in the end, but it makes perfect sense to them as a business. I got to imagine that this is to appeal to the evolving uh, landscape of photographers who are used to. Uh, digital cameras, they're they're probably trying to attract even more people from the DSLR world who are used to the touchscreen into the medium format. You know, it's it's been a, a big leap to go from one to the next, and uh, I think this will attract more people to the medium format environment that had never been there before. Right, and and I can totally see that with the um uh, the X one D bodies for sure because you've got this more compact size. Um, but I I got to thinking, okay, this uh traditional medium format back on a uh if I say bare bones, I'm probably not doing it justice enough in terms of the body. It's basically just an uh, a tiny little sliver that attaches the back 
to the the lens and there's not much on it. They say that there's going to be some optional accessories like a viewfinder and a grip because it doesn't even have I li- that. I like that. I like that option. Uh, and uh, optional accessories, of course, at some extra expense. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to you're not going to get those for cheap. But let's bear in mind who owns Hasselblad now. DJI. DJI owns the Hasselblad brand. So if you were to mount a very high quality medium format back on a drone, you would want exactly this as a product, right? So maybe that's what they're trying to build a market for is to bridge the gap between their two different product lines here, the Hasselblad brand and the DJI uh, drone brands. You know, I, I, it's, it's so hard to get into the head of um, these manufacturers. And then you look at some of the things that DJI has released and not released of late and you're just kind of like what are they even thinking so it's a fun exercise for people like you and me to look at the recent announcements and the releases but we just really don't know what they're up to and it it was the same even with more pedestrian stuff like the canon like i was talking about i i just couldn't figure out you know it was it was just such a strange thing to have that camera right in between and then when they explained this is to fit a market need. So I think you're going down the right path. I think it's to fit a market need that we may not even know exists yet. And uh, uh, I think the blending with the DJI uh, other offerings is probably exactly where they're headed. And uh, to, to make a, a medium format back, uh, I love the modularity of those medium format systems. Sure. Because your lens is, of course, always separate from your camera. But your camera is not just one piece either. The camera body is a separate component from the back of the camera body, which is uh, what contains the uh, image sensor and all the computational stuff. And it talks to the camera in terms of uh, communicating dials and knobs and functions and, uh, and, and what have you. This was a, a relic of the transition from film to digital because you would have the ability to take a, um, a medium format film camera and put a digital back Uh, on it in order to immediately say, okay, well, I've already got my investment in the camera body. I love it. I don't need to replace that, but let's join the digital world uh, and it would keep the costs down. But for this instance, uh, if the back is separate and that's where all the electronic guts and everything are and the lens is separate, then to make this tiny little body, the R&D cost on that is probably a fraction of what it would be to make an entire camera body sure. itself. And so uh, for a smaller niche, this actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, even if they don't sell a lot of them, to hit their return on investment would be at an earlier price point than in any other camera format I could imagine. Um, so uh, best of luck to uh, Hasselblad with these new investments. They've got a lot of pressure in the medium format space uh, from, I mean, phase one on the, the really high-end stuff. Uh, and they've got some... Uh, cameras that are you know worth half the price of my house um and uh, then from fuji on the lower end they're really kind of eating up that uh that initial entry level yeah. market and so let's let's see where house of blood fits sort of in the mid-range of all of this uh in terms of a brand moving forward they definitely have uh, a good parent company now that can keep them afloat even if sales tend to uh dwindle off a little bit uh but uh uh, competition is a good thing. More people in this space is is great, and I'm great to see, I'm happy to see these new announcements from Hasselblad. All right, let's move on to the final story. Uh, this one, I mean, I always kind of I, I want to have a fun story at the end, or at least something absurd or ridiculous uh, for this podcast. And so, from Petapixel, um, Gigi Hadid, Hadid, I'm not sure how I pronounce her name, uh, famous celebrity model. Um, 
basically is saying that I can use a photographer's photo because I smiled. <laughs> and so here's the issue. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the model in question uh, put a photograph of herself smiling on her Instagram feed. Now, she did not take the photograph. She did not have permis- uh, permission to use the photograph. And she's being sued because she is infringing on the copyright of the photographer. Now, the photographer in question uh, <laughs> is getting the, the most unusual response. Basically, that the usage of the image is, is fair use because uh, Gigi Hadid was smiling and that constitutes to creative input in the photograph and thereby she is, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the full defense would be, a part owner of the copyright for the image and thereby is able to use it. I'm not sure exactly what angle it is, but she co-creator to it. Co-creator. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> Larry, I'm sure you've had discussions on copyright many times in the past. Uh, I don't even know what question to ask you. What, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I would always, you know, if there's any question at all, I'm going to call up my friend Jack Resnicki. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and Ed, Ed Greenberg. Ed Greenberg. Yep, Jack and Ed are great people. I, I buy their books when they come out. Uh, I've gotten each of their uh, copyright books, and in fact, for a lot of years, I was carrying around um, samples of their uh, model releases on my iPhone and my iPad, so that if I ran into a circumstance where I wanted to take somebody's picture, I had. Every version, you know, one of the seven versions that they would recommend for various circumstances. What I think is kind of interesting, and I've always had just this little bit of a a problem in my head with this, is celebrities themselves being photographed. There has been a thing for for some time now, and this doesn't this this really is as much as anything um, kind of a privacy thing, and it has to do, and I'm sure. Not being a lawyer, I'm sure that there are legal ramifications at each level. But as a society in general, we accept that photographs of famous people, quote unquote famous people, are going to happen. And there's nothing they can do to stop it, to prohibit it. And then the those photographs then become available for sale. They're profitable. There's, you know, the, all the magazines that have been uh, at the checkout counter forever, um, where photographers and those magazines make their living by taking these um, uh, unsolicited photographs. So there's always been that side of it, and that's always been kind of interesting to me. But as far as the the technical side of it, I think it's preposterous. And in fact, the initial analysis was that. Uh, the attorney's group for her, for Gigi, did not provide nearly the foundation they need to in order to provide the uh, court case that they're trying to provide, which is that she was a co-creator by smiling. Yeah, and and I think that it's it's really shaky grounds to begin with. Um, but the fact that it is a pervasive mindset of celebrities that they can use photographs of themselves that they don't have their permission to, uh, to, to use because they were created by somebody else. This is not an isolated case. This happens almost daily. Right. Um, and I remember like even people that I, that I respect, like, uh, astrophysicist rock star, Dr. Brian May, um, of Queen, uh, was, uh, this is a story from a few years ago, shared somebody's photo of him, uh, you know, at a concert on his Instagram feed. 
And that person, instead of getting into a big huff about it, um, just sent an Instagram takedown notice and had the image removed uh, rather than put up a fuss. And then Dr. Brian May decided to make a fuss of it yep. uh, afterwards. But, you know, you've got you've got avenues to, uh, to to go through this. You can send a takedown notice. That's a possibility. But, you know, you are devaluing the photographer's work when you're using it without, uh, you know, proper license or proper permissions, uh, maybe using it in the wrong location, or uh, maybe uh, the photographer had licensed a, uh, an image exclusively to one news outlet. And then the photographer uh, finds that the image is being used by other people. Well, then that devalues the license that you've already, you know, had somebody else pay for. So there's, there's lots of angles for this. Um, but it definitely it doesn't. I mean, I'm not a lawyer and, and no, you aren't either, Larry, but it doesn't hit the four pillars that would be required for fair use in any stretch of the imagination. But let's let's kind of uh, come to a, a hypothetical scenario. What if you have like a high end uh, fashion show where you've got a, a hairdresser that basically makes somebody's hair into sculpted art? Now, one might argue that that hairdo itself is a work of art as a sculptor working with uh, clay or marble or any other medium uh, would be considered artwork itself. And that would be inherently by the art of uh, the act of creating it contain copyright. You would have the copyright to that. So I think that that would pass uh, pass the smell test there. Right. You have hair that is beautifully, carefully one off sculpted to be artwork. Okay. What if somebody puts their hair in a bun? Would you consider that to be art? And I don't think. Well, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm going there with you on the first round only because the hair is on somebody who is not now, if, if they're doing it in and of themselves, they're doing their own hair. That's a different animal. But if you're talking about somebody that has sculpted a gorgeous work of art on someone else's head with their, the other person's hair, then is that artwork um, definable in in a court of law as belonging to the person that created? Well, maybe the there's a contract that decides exactly where that copyright would lie. But uh, but, I, I but, but I think so. that if there is a contract uh, stating that somebody will own the copyright to it, that, that in that instance the copyright would would exist. Right uh, now, I'm just kind of drawing a. Uh, kind of a, a both sides of the coin thing here. So that might exist, but I don't think that somebody putting their hair in a bun would be unique and offer artistic input, right? So that would not, not be something all. that could be copyrighted. But where do you draw the line between the two? And so, uh, I mean, you've got copyright that uh, relates to clothing design and to, uh, you know, if sure. somebody's wearing earrings that are from a designer that could have a copyright there. So all of that stuff could be on a person and they might be incidental. And there's laws like, if you photograph the Eiffel Tower at night, its lighting system is copyrighted. But if it's incidental in the uh, Parisian skyline, then it's allowed. And right. so copyright gets really gray and muddy when it comes to all of these different things. But simply the act of smiling is not an art form. It's not unique. And I don't think that there is uh, any chance that this will work in uh, Gigi's favor here. But um, it's we've we got to fight the good fight, I guess. I mean, this is a this is a constant sure. thing, and I'm always trying to educate people. Uh, and I've had my images stolen constantly, and and I usually have uh, you know settlements coming in here and there from uh, commercial uses that uh, that I definitely did not allow for. And uh, yeah, 
if I can educate the public, not just the photographic public, but just everybody out there that if you find something on the internet, it's not free, right? Any image that's been created since before 1923 uh, is in the public domain, 1921 in Canada. Uh, and anything after that might have the copyright expired or the person deliberately put it into the public domain. But 99.9% of the images that we see uh, are owned by somebody. Somebody has the rights for them and you cannot just use them for free unless you're, of course, qualified uh, on fair use. So if I were to use this image uh, as the uh, title card uh, for this podcast episode, I'd be able to do that because I'm discussing it and I can state very specifically that it is. Uh, what is uh, exclusively Inc., uh, which owns the copyright to this image, I'm identifying them and we are discussing it for critical purposes. And that's always been allowed under the Copyright Act. Sure. Um, but don't just take things for free. You know, <laughs> make sure that you respect your fellow photographers, uh, your fellow artists of any uh, of any sort uh, and uh, help us kind of carry that torch. I couldn't agree more. And I also think that, uh, you know, the the silliness of saying I smiled a smile doesn't imply contract. No. A smile doesn't imply anything. A smile could be smiling at somebody behind the photographer. It could be anything. And then would it be the person that you're smiling at that did something funny that evoked the smile and then it's their responsibility because you smiled? You didn't smile on your own accord. You smiled because somebody else made you smile. And does that third party person own the copyright, right? I mean, you, th oh, this, this is, is absurd. Good. I gotta, None of this makes any sense. I got to go after the photographer and ask for rights because uh, I, I want a commission because I made Gigi smile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll just leave this where it is. I'm curious to see how this lawsuit shapes uh, shapes out. And I hope the photographer gets uh, gets something good at the end of this because yeah, their, uh, their rights were infringed. I think that's pretty clear here, uh, but it's the courts that will decide that for sure. Okay, uh, let's get into our final segment of the podcast, the picks of the week. Uh, Larry, I, I know that uh, you've got something that uh, is uh, kind of uh, near and dear to your heart, something that uh, you can't live without, I suppose. Uh, what, what is yeah. your pick? Well, you know, I, as a, a photographer who actually occasionally takes pictures outdoors, one of my favorite things is a very simple invention, and it's the Hoodman Hood Loop. Those guys have been going to photography trade shows for a lot of years, and I've seen the guys at the uh, at the booths, and I've had a Hoodman hood loop ever since I knew that they existed. And every time I use mine, people would, you know, if there were a number of photographers around, they'd be going, "What is that? That's really cool." Because there's a, a little bit of uh, uh, magnification, very small, uh, but a little bit of magnification with the hood loop, and then you just put it over the LCD on the back of your camera, and you can actually see. Uh, the image that you just shot, you can check and see uh, details and things like that in much greater uh, detail and with no outside light influencing you uh, by using the hood loop. So I've liked the hood loop since it came out and a lot of people know about them. The thing I did not like about the hood loop was when they first started selling and distributing them, it came with a neck lanyard. So it would hang around your neck. And ironically, cameras tend to hang around your neck on a strap. <laughs> so so my battle was the same battle as a lot of people had where the hood loop and the camera would bump into each other, the lanyards would, you know, the lanyard would get caught around the camera strap and vice versa, and it was just a frustrating situation. So 
um, for a lot of years, I did something called Larry's Cheap Shots. And I just looked for ways to provide inexpensive solutions, cheap solutions to help photographers um, so that they could solve a problem, uh, maybe not invest in something super expensive that they didn't really need, less expensive versions of cases, less expensive versions of reflectors, diffusers, things like that. One of the things that I came up with uh, on a trip to a hardware store was from a company called Keyback. So if you think of a janitor's big key ring with 20, 30, 40 keys on a big key ring that would hang from their waist, they would occasionally, frequently be on some sort of um, a leash of some kind that's right there at their belt level. And so they would take out and use whatever key and then just let go and the whole key ring would snap back to their hip. And most of those devices were some sort of chain. But I found one that was Kevlar uh, thread. It's like halfway between rope and thread. So Kevlar cord from a company called Keyback. And it was great. And then I figured out a really easy way to attach it to my hood loop. And I stuck this on my hip. And so then anytime I wanted to use it, I'd just grab it from my hip, bring it up to the LCD, use it for a second, and then just drop it, just let it go. And it would snap back to my hip and it was never fighting with my camera hanging around my neck. Right. And so it was, a, it was a great solution for me. I put this out there on a video when I was working at Kelby One. I put this out there and people actually would come up to me at trade shows and show me theirs and, and say, <laughs> this is the thing. Well, the people at Hoodman saw the same video that I put out there and they went to the company that same company, Keyback, and they use the same technology. Now, granted, it's a slightly different shape, uh, and it has the logo on it from Hoodman, but they have a, retract a retractable lanyard now. So I invented it, and they sent me 12 of them to thank me for inventing it. I told them they should call it the Lariat, and they, <laughs> and they, they said, no, we're going to call it the lanyard. <laughs> so uh, I, I would have loved, uh, if, if I get one of those, you know what I'll call it. Uh, but uh, that's, a, that's a great pick. And uh, we'll make sure that I have uh, links to that in the show notes, uh, as well as links to where people can find you, Larry. Before I get to my pick, I, I want to uh, make sure people can find you. Uh, and I know not everybody listens to the very end of the podcast. So uh, online, if people want to see or hear more of what you are up to, where can people do that? Uh, a couple places, LarryBecker.tv. It is not a .com, so it's LarryBecker.tv. And then the other thing is just go to YouTube.com slash LarryBecker, all one word. That should work. All right. We'll have those links there. And uh, as I mentioned before, the Picturing Success podcast is one that you do with Rick Salmon. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's always a great one to listen to so uh, people can check you out and hear uh, you opine away on a variety of photographic topics uh, over on that website, too. Okay, so my pick, something that I'm surprised I hadn't picked before. I was going through this wonderful table I have in my studio that just is cluttered with photographic, I don't want to say junk, but uh, eccentricities and eclectic gear, gadget, whatever kind of stuff I could imagine and that I just don't have a place or a shelf for. Um, and on there was a set of extension tubes. And I, I looked back through the, the show notes and I hadn't recommended Kenko extension tubes before. If anybody hasn't um, explored macro photography and you don't have a macro lens, then for $120 to $130 US, um, you can get a, a set of these extension tubes. They come in three different sizes. You can use one, two, or all three of them at the same time uh, that will shift the focusing range of your lens closer. 
So uh, instead of having infinity focus being infinity, it's now like maybe you know five feet away. But the closer range is where you're really going to have the impact. So you can focus closer uh, than you would ever be able to before. And it's a great way for you to, uh, with no optics or anything, you're just shifting the focus forward. So you don't have a degradation in quality uh, by any means uh, to start getting closer to subjects. And uh, even if you're a wedding photographer and you don't necessarily have a macro lens, throw some extension tubes in your kit so that you can get some really nice ring shots or, you know, dress detail shots or anything of that nature. Um, But if you are a macro photographer and you have a dedicated macro lens and you just have that itch to get closer and closer, put extension tubes on your macro lens and you would be able to, in some cases, double the magnification that you would get uh, otherwise for you know, a modest investment. Uh, you don't have to buy the name brand tubes. Uh, Canon makes some, Nikon makes some, and I'm sure most other manufacturers will make extension tubes for their cameras. There's no glass involved. So, so long as they work, they'll work perfectly. Uh, and I've had some really cheap brands, like uh, I had one student it was the Apotur brand that, uh, and I'm sure they make some good things, but their extension tubes literally fell apart out of the box. Um, so Kenko, uh, they make a great, uh, a great set of tubes, high quality. I've been using them for years. They make them for Nikon, Canon, Micro Four Thirds, Sony, uh, possibly others. But um, if you're looking at uh, getting a little bit closer with your work and finding some more creative potential, uh, it's a piece of gear that I would not go without. It's on my wish list now. Oh, perfect. Well, there you go. I'm glad I could spend your money, Larry. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, and I hope to have you back. This was a riveting discussion. And, uh, uh, you know, your opinions were really spot on. Well, thank you so much. I, I do appreciate it. It's really such a pleasure and outside my normal to talk to camera nerds. I am uh, a lot of times just demystifying things. And, uh, you know, I've got 20 plus camera classes over at Kelby just to demystify cameras. And, uh, it's because I'm one of the few people who actually will read the manual. Then I just, (laughs) then I just explain what I read and, uh, I get paid to do camera classes that way. And so it's just been a, a nice pleasure to, uh, to deep dive into some of the stuff that I, I don't, get to talk about on a daily basis. And obviously it's been a pleasure listening to you because you know more about this stuff than I do. Well, it's, uh, I, I just spent more time reading these articles, I suppose. I, I wake up in the morning, every morning with a cup of coffee and I dive into sometimes, you know, white papers and scientific articles and some of these things like, uh, you know, understanding the, the, the properties of quantum efficiency as, as light passes through filters and things like that. You don't get to hear that on many other podcasts. So uh, we have fun with the show. Uh, we're uh, about a year and a half in at this point and the numbers keep growing. So thanks to everybody that listens. Uh, Larry, thanks again for being here and now it's time to get out and shoot. <laughs>